You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Hello, welcome to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Its purpose is to dissect and discuss classic horror films, but also contemporary new ones as well. As we kick off the fourth season of our podcast, we're going to kind of look at the, the great late George A. Romero's work. Uh, and what better way to start it off than to talk about his first film, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, as always, I'm your lead host for the podcast discussions, Saul Muerte. And joining me is fresh new blood on the scene. A new, we've got a new surgeon in the midst and by none other than Oscar Jack. Welcome, Oscar. Thank you very much. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. Look, it's uh, look, it's awesome to have, as I said, um, off record, and for the listeners out there to have have new blood come in and kind of offer a fresh take on these things, which is always uh, insightful and and great because uh, it always offers a new perspective. But just to give a bit of a background as to who you are to our listeners out there and any new listeners that are coming aboard for that matter, um, what is what is it? Uh, who are you first and foremost? And we met. Um, Maybe I'll give a bit of background as to how we met, but uh, it was during um, a performance uh, by a team called Hunted, which is kind of a horror interactive live experience. Uh, normally would put on kind of a, a, a horror-themed interactive play, essentially, isn't it? In a, yeah. A, and more, more importantly, I would say location is key for these performances as well because they really set the tone of the piece. Yeah. Um, and uh, you were you were one of the performers that were on there. But um, tell tell the people, as I said, about a little bit about maybe who you are and, and what you do. What makes you tick? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm an actor, as you mentioned. I'm also uh, a writer and filmmaker. I've been doing all those things for about twelve, thirteen years. Um, so I'm always just sort of stumbling and fumbling my way through <laughs> creative ventures and, yeah, making films, made a couple, uh, I guess you'd call them horror films. Uh, sure. Semi-recently <laughs> made a horror comedy that uh, I've just started editing today, uh, which is, you know, very exciting to see that kind nice. of work pop up about giant cockroaches. Um, ah, <laughs> sweet. Yeah, strange, strange stuff. Like, I just, I love the absurd. I yeah, love, right. you know, that magical realism um, that is so inherent in so much horror yes. is something that, like, resonates with me in all the work that I do. And I think it's one of the big reasons that I love horror so much and why it's been such a big part of my filmmaking uh, education and, and inspiration and kind of what put the fires in my belly when I was, you know, a teenager. Sure. Well, let, let, maybe let's let maybe touch on that. Like what, uh, so, I mean, you're talking about being a creator. Actually, firstly, I, are you, do, do you want to mention the name of the, your short or is that to, to be disclosed? Uh, I, it's, it's called Roaches. Roaches. Um, cool. It's called Roaches and it should be uh, out in the next couple months. Um, oh yeah. It's, I'll be posting it all over the place uh, as soon as it's yeah, ready nice. to be seen by the, the light of day. Yeah, great, great. Well, like, at uh, the time this uh, we're recording this right, right early, so for listeners out there, we're recording this in July, but I'm aiming to release this um, around the time that Night of the Living Dead 
is celebrating its 50th year. 50 years. I can't believe that this classic has reached such a pinnacle um, moment of time um, in film history. But 50 years ago, it was released. And that's around October time. So your your movie may well already be out there um, by the time we come around to it. Um, but let's maybe uh, just touch on... Um, what is it that draws you to uh, horror, especially? Is there any kind of filmmakers or genre style within, like subgenres within horror, that always pulls you in? What What is it that you kind of find yourself gravitating towards? Well, I mean, I was like, as a kid, I was terrified of everything. Mm. I was like the biggest scaredy cat. I, I think, uh, uh, like the first, you know, horror film that I ever watched all the way through was like Gremlins. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but but I I just remember things would stick in my mind. Mm-hmm. The images that would just keep on repeating, you know, watching Jaws when I was like 13 yeah. years old and I was terrified to go into a pool um, <laughs> for the next considerable little while. Um, but then at some point when I was maybe like 14, 15, something in my brain just the flick, the, 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 the switch just flicked. Yes. And, I stopped looking away from the screen and I started being interested in what was happening and the artistry that went into it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, like going to my, um, my local, you know, civic video when it still existed and uh, the horror section of the video store is, I was always uh, just pulled towards it mm-hmm. Um you know, picking up VHS tapes and looking at the back, and that used to uh, uh, fulfill my my adrenaline. That was yeah. just like, oh, that's that's all I needed to see is read a little bit, watch the you know, <laughs> look at the creepy kids on the back of the Village of the Damned, uh, you know, VHS, and be like, just letting that, <laughs> that uh, run my imagination. But then, yeah, just the law of diminishing returns, and I think that's my relationship with horror. You know, in terms of looking for the thrill, it's like, I want to see a movie that affects me in a really, like, in a satisfying way. Not in a cheap, cheap jump scare, you know. I want something that, you know, sits with me and makes me just wow at at what they've done, especially horror nowadays. Yeah, we're, we're going through this uh, huge renaissance we, um, with horror at the moment, which is, uh, for horror fans out there, like, you know, it's, it's, it's so great to kind of see it suddenly thrust back into the limelight once again. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, um, you know, looking at the likes of how, you know, Jordan Peele's Get Out uh, has been kind of making ways, Hereditary more recently as well. Yep. Um, and they're kind of what I what I call thinking person's horror as well. Mm. There's a lot of intellectual kind of stuff going on with these movies. Um, and it's kind of refreshing to see because I think up to maybe about maybe two, maybe three years ago, horror films have always kind of been kind of this paint by numbers kind of approach to, to filmmaking, I felt. And we were in a bit of a, a lull. There were exceptions, don't get me wrong. There were kind of little flickers and pulses along the way. Mm. Um, but this is encouraging to see that this kind of momentum is kind of shifting slightly. And, and you, you always find that it does, mm. like, you know, every now and again, a horror film will come out and, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, like Misery or Carrie, something that mainstream critical uh, recognition. Yeah. Um, and then that, yeah, that kind of like keeps it all going and then it dwindles off and gets really, you know, 
reductive and then <laughs> another incredibly inspiring horror film comes out and it just sets sets it all on fire again. That's right. I mean, that's what keeps us pulling back. I mean, I, I guess look, mm. this is a good kind of segue now to kind of talk about the subject at hand that we're here to discuss, which is Night of the Living Dead, George A. Romero's first ever film. Um, as I mentioned, it's, it's celebrating 50 years. Um, what do, do you, it's so, it's it's kind of interesting to talk about these kind of, these what are called these older classic films because they're so embedded in the psyche and any horror genre f- uh, fan kind of instinctively knows these films, whether they've seen them or not. Um, I mean, there's a reason, like, he, he, Romero, basically reinvented the term zombie Mm. um, and uh, set up a lot of rules and stuff that are now kind of repeated today. I mean, you only need to watch The Walking Dead and everything that's embedded in that is uh, is taken from um, Romero, you know, and they've acknowledged that too, even with, when he passed away last year, um, the, the team behind The Walking Dead had a, a honorary ap- episode devoted to him. You know, um, but what do you do? You recall the first time you ever saw the film yourself, or was it so like entrenched in your mind that it's almost like you kind of don't recall that that first ever time? No, no, I remember. I remember very distinctly. Uh, it was. It was when I had just gotten into um, filmmaking really, really cool. And horror was kind of my gateway into that. Mm. Um, and so it was in the pile of, you know, 10 weekly DVDs uh, that I'd picked up. And yeah. uh, I remember being so inspired by it because I wanted to, at the end of high school, I wanted to make my own zombie movie. That was, uh, you know, set in one house. It was like, you know, pure uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead uh, inspired. Sure. Um, and I'd seen that, yeah, saw that. Uh, I actually think the Zack Snyder Dawn Dead was the first one that I'd seen. Yes. Which kind of piqued my interest and, and made me look a little closer. And so when I saw, you know, did some research and found out it was a remake of... Mm you know, the, the 78 classic yeah. and following down the line of, oh, this is the first one, chucking it on. And and just, I just remember really loving yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, which, which is kind of a bit surprising because, you know, some of those, some of the absolute classics are a bit hard to sit through, you know, it's, yeah, you find it, and I think I think that's the uh, that's the problem with uh, modern age viewing too, because they, uh, you know we, the the nature of storytelling has changed so much, uh, along yeah. with the craft of filmmaking itself, and mm. so um, when we watch these classics, and we I we just did Ro- Rosemary's Baby recently, mm-hmm. um, and as much as I love that film, I, I was talking to my colleague Nicka, you know, for the podcast. And I said that it, and this is something I find hard with Polanski. I do love uh, the majority of his work, not all of them, um, but the the pace of his films are so slow. And that would be my one criticism of of, of Rosemary's Babies that it, it it feels long. It's a bit dated too. It's very much you know in that kind of you know late sixties um, uh, kind of period, and it's oh. and it's very much of New York in that time as well. Mm. Um, 
so it's kind of hard to shift from that. So if you're coming from it from a modern gaze, it's very easy for people to just tune out. Um, mm. and, and the same could go in hand with this, you know, the Night of the Living Dead. It's, it's shot, it's all black and white. Um, it's very uh, insular in the way it's kind of shot, um, primarily because they were you know, restricted to filming in one location. Mm. Tiny, uh, but, tiny budget. Yeah, small, small budget, yeah. nothing to work on. And, you know, they were shooting with increments at a time, whatever they could do to kind of, you know, get a little bit of money, okay, shoot the next bit, come back, you know. And so, um, but it's kind of one of the reasons why I think it's successful is that that uh, claustrophobic feeling that you get when it's, because it's set in one location yeah. um, with everything kind of out, you know, the outside creeping in, Um and we can talk about uh, all the imagery and the metaphors that come with, you know, with that that have been criti- uh, uh, carefully criticised over the years, which wasn't necessarily Romero's intention, but is definitely something that's lent its in its favour as as times worn on. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's definitely it's definitely a kind of a, an interesting one to get into. I, I'm going to quite controversially, I'd probably say it's probably not one of my favourite black and white horror films. Um, and I know you were talking about things that are a little bit interesting. I know I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but it's um, a film called Carnival of Souls. Um, if you haven't seen it, I so recommend you watch it. Um, it's a bit weird and out there and, and uh, interesting. I think it's a, a highly, highly recommend it. Well, I've written um, it down. Yeah, all, do it, do it. Um, but that's not to, as I say, to take away from this because a lot of kind of political messaging that comes across in this film as does a lot of Romero's films after this too um, and that's why when it first came out it was quite easily rebuffed but the closer critics have looked at it they've realised that it was actually quite a smart little gem um, mm. ticking away um, so let's, um, I guess let's have a little look at the, uh, the film itself because um, as I said already um, you know, we'll go through the, the plot line as it were um, and as already kind of mentioned, it's um, it is primarily shot in one location, but we do kind of, we do get a um, a little bit kind of um, outside of of the main kind of farmhouse or house that it's all set in uh, before it kind of gets going. And um, I am deliberately kind of goofing a bit because I'm trying to set up my window and see you at the same time, Oscar. Um, okay. So yeah, so let's look at the plot line. So like we, right from the get go, we're kind of introduced to um, Barbara and her brother Johnny, and they are going to visit their father's grave. Um, so we kind of pretty much they drive in that we're in this kind of cemetery area, uh, and then, look, cemeteries are at kind of an eerie place anyway. But this is something that. Uh, the the tone of the movie is already kind of set quite uh, succinctly from the get go. Here, it, it feels eerie and a bit off centre. They they're the only two people there, and that's makes the location even more desolate. Um, and not that like you know you go to if you were to go to a cemetery it is a bit like that anyway. Um, but it's just the way it's kind of shot and and the camera angles as well and the movement as it's following the, it. Following. The soundtrack, the score, the score oh. is brilliant in that yeah. opening. It yeah. Immediately, like on the rewatch, I was just like, this immediately hooks me in. I'm yeah. so interested. And 
I can't I can't even like quantify it in my brain. It's <laughs> it's yeah, it's I mean it's been it's been almost ten years since I had watched it. Yeah. The first yeah. time I haven't watched it a whole lot. It doesn't have a whole lot of views um in my book, but it's it, yeah, yeah but no, I mean, right that, back into it. Yeah, that's because that's so that's interesting because I I probably would agree. I haven't. Um, I, I'd say I've. It's been a fair. I mean, obviously, I rewatched it prior to our discussions, but uh, I'd probably say it's been a while since I'd watched it um, before that. Um, but this is what I find about these kind of classic films: is like that that shouldn't kind of. With that statement, it kind of might sound like it's not, you know, does it is it does it warrant repeat viewing? But I, I, it's like you said, when you do watch them, it does draw you back in, and that says something about the film um, that it's able to do that on repeat viewing as well. Mm. Um, so yes, we, we, as I said, we've kind of we've seen you know Barbara and Johnny kind of going through uh, the graveyard, and there's um, this kind of strange kind of person that's following Barbara around a bit in the background and it's kind of a bit dismissed and not really uh looked at and um and there's this whole bit where um she's obviously uh i would say she's an incredibly anxious person yeah by nature right and so and you're getting that sense already and uh johnny's bringing up you know you He's he's pulling up the childhood uh, uh, anxieties for her. You used to hate this place, and yeah. starts playing the childhood game again. They're coming to get you, Barbara. And how often has that quote been mentioned as well? Like it's, oh, it's like so brilliant. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's it's been riffed so many times off mm. off things, but you know it's you know I still say it now. Like you know it's like my, my grandmother is named Barbara, so. It's, <laughs> So embedded in my life. <laughs> nice. I love it. <laughs> oh, but like, uh, so I guess like the growing sense of of dread is something that hits hard in this film right from the beginning because they are he Johnny is kind of joking around. They don't realize how serious the danger is because um, you know he he ends up he's the one that ends up kind of getting um, attacked by this kind of well it's a zombie they never say the word zombie in the film this ghoul this ghoul that's right so johnny kind of hits his head basically essentially in the struggle and he's killed um leaving barbara kind of on her own and there's this great moment where she's kind of stumbling around she finally kind of ends her way back into the car and you know this this It's that image of that, you know, the ghoul coming up to the face, the face of the uh, of the screen. It's just he's an interesting looking guy as well. The, the, the ghoul, he's tall. He's got, you know, this this long, long, interesting looking face. He's a bit of a like a lurch kind of uh, Adam yeah. kind of looking guy. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that analogy. Yeah, he's he is. He's got this kind of a really interesting look, and like you pretty much. If you if you look on any uh, the majority of any of the Night of the Living Dead kind of poster stills or or covers, he's the one that is pictured on it too. Mm. Um, it, it, his presence is needed like to be odd. I don't know how how they went around with the casting of of that character, mm. but in order for this to be successful, that first ghoul needed to have a an interesting look, you know. Yeah. Um, 
and it's like it pursues her down. You know, she's got the car and she's uh, she doesn't she, she drives it in reverse, doesn't she? Kind of down and like well, lets no, no, the she, handbrake off and yeah, because because uh, Johnny's got the key. That's it. That's right. Yeah. So he, you know, the ghoul smashes in a window and he picks up a rock. Yeah. And, you know, he's like trying to open the door. It's you kind of. I mean, watching this for the first time. Yeah, when you hadn't like like watching it in like the drive-in when you'd never seen a zombie movie before, you you just just being there being like, what is what is happening? Like, what is this guy's deal? He's still kind of uh, he's out of it. He's in the daze, and as it just yeah, like viewing this movie from that lens, I think is really important. Absolutely, like it, it it gives it gives so much more weight to it. Um, you know, something that has been riffed on and, and, and repeated and copied and pasted so many times. Watching it like, yeah, this is the first is important. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, absolutely. It's, 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 a, it's a great little, uh, yeah, it's a great little moment. And like, you just reminded me too, like it's probably a good point to kind of mention that when this film came out, um, it, there was no kind of, uh, I guess, classification like so it was actually open to kids to go and watch too um because and nothing like this had been made and it's it's pretty gory in places like for for the time violent really violent violent. yeah and so like there's like six-year-old nine-year-old kids watching it thinking they're if you if you predate this like thinking they're going to go and see like your uh universal horror kind of Mm. Frankenstein kind of films, which is a very tame comparison, still menacing, but kind of, you know, or it's comedy horror, you know, that's kind mm. of, you know, ab- the whole Abbott and Costello kind of stuff was, yeah. meet, was meet right. The mummy and meet Frankenstein. And- yeah. Yeah. So they're going in thinking that, you know, that's what horror is and something Romero's never shied away from in the, in the entirety of his uh, filmmaking career was, was to pull back on the gore factor. Um, and make he and make it as believable as possible. So all of a sudden, like you got these like people were saying, you know, have re- have recounted about the first time they went to see it, and there's like nine year old kids crying their eyes out at <laughs> the horror they are witnessing. Like, what the hell is this? You know, uh, but, and it and it's a very bleak movie too. It's not like you know, it's no kind of fluffy dice kind of moment. Um, so yeah, I just found that kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, so anyway, to kind of come back to the, the plot line, so you know, Barbara can't. Essentially, she does kind of make her way out by you know, uh, you know, rolling and, down the hill, rolling down the hill, essentially, yeah. uh, crashing the car, and so and then kind of stumbling out, and the figure still kind of lurching its way towards, her, and she kind of makes her way to this um, this house, essentially. Um, and uh, well, I'll I'll jump in just there in that because yeah. when she crashes in there, when she crashes the car, yes. um, I was reading that was born out of necessity because the owner of the car crashed it in between <laughs> when they'd started filming and when they you know were supposed to go back. The owner had, I think, they were the auntie of the producer. Yeah, yeah she dinged in the side of the car so there's like this beautiful close-up as when they crash and he's like you know that's like low budget filmmaking like use use it 
It's yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. You have to, you have to make it work. Oh, oh it's great. Yeah, it crashes the car, and you see a massive dent. That immediately gives you production value, and yeah, yeah. pops out and starts stumbling towards the little house on the on the prairie, little farmhouse. It's interesting too. I'm jumping ahead to to the to the next uh, dead feature film, which I will do with a for the podcast down the track. Um, which was Dawn of the Dead, which, you know, iconically was shot in a shopping mall. Mm. Um, and there is a sequence where there is a car that's taken through that and they, uh, they, they got it for free from a sales lot with the intention of returning. People that are familiar with the film have seen that they trashed that car <laughs> and they basically kind of take it back and go, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, they weren't well liked for that, but yeah, what you do for the sake of getting the film done and experimenting and stuff, which Romero was really um, one of the things that he's been applauded for is the fact that he was um, open to creativity from all avenues, um, you know, behind the scenes and, and even in front of the camera. Um, and a lot of the actors have kind of, you know, uh, expressed how, how, free he was able to let them be with exploring their character and and trying different things like they often come up to him and go oh can i try this out and he's like yeah sure but you know let's do it um yeah which is kind of um you know kind of a, uh, a little bit fresh you know especially when you look at films these days uh, i mean i'm not saying that there aren't directors that do it but it's the idea of the auteur exactly yeah the the, I, the kubrick the it's the they want control over everything and ownership right. over everything. And, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. But it's, all, it's, it's also because um, uh, films these days are, are time precious. So mm. there isn't that flexibility to kind of go, yeah, yeah, that's okay. You can try something out because they're like, no, I've got, we have 10 days to shoot this thing. Uh, we don't have time to kind of fluff around. We've got to get, make sure all the shots are nailed down tight so that tends to be the way of things unfortunately and a lot of freedom has been lost in a lot of uh you know modern kind of filmmaking um which is again you know we're talking about people talk about how the 70s and 80s in horror are still kind of like that golden era um, and it's because they were allowed to have that freedom to create stuff you know you only need to look at the likes of um evil dead with sam raimi mm. as an example um, amongst a, a plethora of others, um, which I could go into detail, but I won't, um, where they were actually able to kind of just really, they were always kind of young, uh, independent filmmakers, gorilla, shot gorilla style, and just for the love of it and the thrill of it, were able to kind of knock something together, which held, held str- strong and true and resonates on the screen. And this is an example with Romero's work, both in this and, and in Dawn of the Dead. Um, which is pretty cool. So look, as I said, so Barbara does does end up at the uh, at this house, um, and she kind of manages to get inside. Um, and then this is where we meet. Uh, I guess he's our hero, um, our lead protagonist, essentially. Like you're kind of led to believe it's it's Barbara at first, but she's so shell shocked for the majority of the film um, that this other character comes in. Uh, called Ben, um, and he's um, 
played by Dwayne Jones. Um, and one of the big things that was highlighted within this film was that he was an African-American actor. Um, apparently, like, that wasn't an intentional thing on Romero's part, but so much has been picked up on the fact that this is pretty much the first time you would, that we've seen in, in film history um, an African-American uh, actor play a hero role um, on what was essentially, what essentially would become a mainstream film. Um, and it, there's a lot to be kind of said about that, particularly as there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of uh, likeness around this film uh, towards the impact that the Vietnam War had on American society, um, particularly um, with the African Americans who went out, fought for their country, came back, and were basically kind of ignored. Mm. And you know, never kind of held in as high praise as, as um, the uh, Caucasian Americans. Um, and without jumping towards the end, the, the the way this film ends kind of almost highlights that fact, you know, to the point. And we'll get to that when we do come to it. Um, it's interesting too, though, because he didn't he, he his career wise didn't kind of stem too much outside of that he was a teacher as well you know he, and he was a incredibly well scholared uh gentleman um and uh so it's kind of interesting having someone of that stature kind of playing a very kind of uh, you know horror at this point was incredibly kind of i mean it's even to, to this day is never really considered highbrow unless you get into the lights of recent you know, the recent wave of films as we discussed at the at the beginning of the film of the podcast and um, but yeah he didn't kind of he didn't really kind of do a lot I, on theater he did he was quite a huge presence on the theater scene um but um when it came to film like his only real kind of two highlights was uh, another horror film called gander and hess uh in 1973 and then and there was a film around like the mid 80s called beat street um that he kind of played a role in. Um, he was only 51 when he passed away as well. So he was uh, quite, quite young. Um, but he will still always go down in history for, for the role he played within, you know, Night of the Living Dead. Um, so I just repeat his name again, Dwayne Jones. Um, and uh, yeah, he, and he's solid in this film. He plays that kind of the hero arc to a T. Mm. Um, so pro- he's so proactive he's like, like resourceful he yeah he, he immediately comes in and he's he's doing all the right things that kind of it, it's it's funny because i'm i've i've just been reading uh matt uh was it matt matt ruff's um lovecraft country Oh yeah, uh, which Jordan Peele's developing uh, into a TV series, mm. and the main character in that it's set in the fifties, but the main character is a African American veteran, and it's a very similar kind of vibe where it, it uh, he's got a confidence about him, yes, and a and a, 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 a certainty that 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 I feel like that as a background would totally make sense. If yeah, he, yes. if he had fought, because he, he and he doesn't take flack from anyone in this movie. Right. He, you know, he lays he lays the law down, and and he's an authority in this film, yeah. and yeah. one who fights for it and fights for that survival, which makes you know, which makes the ending so tragic. 
because he does fight for that survival and earn it yeah. uh, with such vigor. Yeah, he, he and does. Gusto. Mm. Yeah, and it, and it's yeah, it's, it's interesting too. Like it's he's the only one that really has strength in his convictions too. But like you know, that mm. we we do meet a, a couple uh, a little bit like the what the typical kind of nuclear American family. Um, in a bit, and we'll, we will get to them. But the, that Harry character from that from those from that couple were um, he tries to be that too, but he's so trapped in his mindset of how things are supposed to be that he doesn't have that flexibility to adapt to the surroundings and the impact that's happening to him and his family. Whereas Ben does that, you know, and he's often trying to assess the situation. As and it's that's coming the, up, as you know, it's yeah, present, present. That's it. Yeah, wow. he's taken a, a leaf out of um, Eckhart Tolle's kind of you know mindset. And, you know, yeah. It's not about the past or the future; it's about the now. About the now, um, the power of now, <laughs> the power of now. Um, so yeah, but it's true though, because like, and that's that's the thing. You often see that. I mean, off the top of my head, you know, um, I kind of instinctively think of Gene Hackman's character in the Poseidon Adventure where this kind of very kind of, you know, we need to be doing this. The only way to survive is that we need to get from here to here. Um, and there's a similar kind of uh, approach to Ben's character within this too. Um, so, but he does, when he does come in, he's the one that's, he starts barricading up the doors and, you know, and stuff and, and, you know, gets tables and whatever he can find, you know, and checks the radio, uh, checks food, checks, you know, yeah. what weapons there are, nails, hammers. That's it. Yeah. He's, he's, he's on it. You know, it's like, he's watched, it's like, he's, you know, a big zombie movie fan. Yeah. <laughs> he had plan yeah, yeah. zombie survival plan that's right so many of us have and he, i've thought about it time to time but he was the first to have it that's it exactly he's he's, he's the uh he was the first ever doomsday prepper mm. uh, <laughs> out there <it> is. <laughs> i've been waiting for this moment <laughs> um yes yeah, so, yeah, it's interesting isn't it so like um and it's him that finds the radio too isn't it as well and he's yep. the one that starts trying to uh, pick up and find out what's been going on. Uh, we, we start to kind of learn a bit about his background a bit later on. Mm. Um, but he's the one that's trying to get a reaction from Barbara, who's just completely shell-shocked, as I she's, said. She's seen a body a body upstairs. That's right. The great, you know, ping-pong eye, ping-pong ball eye, <laughs> drippy, drippy, gross corpse. Yeah. Yeah, she, Barbara's not having a good time. No, 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 she's not. It's like all, oh. all sweet and uh, and niceties and that kind of wholesome American, American girl who's suddenly confronted with the unimaginable. Mm. Um, yeah. So look, it's um, and yeah, you're right. He finds that he's the one that finds the rifle too. Um, and he's he keeps trying to get conversation going because he's trying to get her to act essentially because it's her inability to act that he already knows will be her downfall and potentially his if they, if she doesn't kind of snap out of it. Mm. Um, so he's trying to kind of get a rise out of her. Um, and so, um, and it's uh, at some point they discover that there is a cellar to this kind of farmhouse as well. Mm. Um, and this is where we then meet uh, this kind of married couple, um, Harry and Helen Cooper, and they have a, a young daughter called Karen as well. Um, and it, it's kind of like 
immediately they think that they're the owners of the house, but we soon come to learn that they, like Ben and Barbara, have kind of are using this place as a refuge. Um, and um, and then Cooper. we get, sorry, Mr. Cooper. He, he yeah. watching it, it struck me. I was like, he's like, he's like a sitcom dad. He's like, he, a, yeah, he's a sixties sitcom dad, or like the cranky neighbor, or like, yes. like, and it just, I, I, the thing I love about watching this is the, the melding of acting. Yes, because uh, uh, Dwayne, who plays Ben, is is coming from like more naturalistic. Yes, he's he's it's that's his acting. His style of acting is does feel a lot closer to like a modern sensibility. Whereas, you know, Mr. Cooper and all of the others, it's all, Oh gee, sir, you know, and yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, gee yeah. this and golly that. And yeah, they feel like ripped straight from, uh, yeah. One of those 60s shows. Yeah. I mean, and I think what's interesting about those characters as well is, um, and I think you're hitting the nail on the head there, Oscar, is that like they, um, they are representative of, of the old America that was affected by the Second World War, they're like the babe, the the original baby boomers, right? That are that have dealt with what they believe was death and destruction as they knew it, albeit far removed, because you know it's it's the kids were sent away to kind of do this thing. Whereas uh, for me, Ben's character is representative of of the Vietnamese War and the impact that that had on on those kids. Mm-hmm. at the time um and it's a it was a very different war it was a lot more confronting because cameras for the first time were able to go out and kind of record stuff uh pretty upfront and confrontational mm-hmm. um and he is representative of that and i think that's what worked with the different kind of acting styles that you were mentioning mm-hmm. uh because it does kind of they are a juxtaposition to each other um and i think that's kind of why it works particularly as you know to then arc back to the fact that Ben's the one that's the the one that's active. Mm. Um, everyone yeah. else is being reactive. They, they've 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 been whereas, hiding down yeah. in the cellar. That's it. Or I think it's like hours. Like they they've been down there a while, and they have been. Yeah, they've they heard the you know the first kind of zombie attack, and that's and, right. They've wait, you know. They've come out after all of all of this, and they just want to. They want to take the radio down. They want to take it all down there and yeah. hide in that foxhole. But but Ben knows that that's a terrible idea. Yeah, because um, like he, he's like, if we go down there, we have no escape route. Like we mm. are, we're bunkered down. We don't, you know. We, and he's right. Like the thing is, he's he's, he's right. Like you know, in his mm. analogy, it's like, I. That's that is like the last place that we'll go to, and obviously that's where they end up having to go to because they get overwhelmed. Um, but you know he does everything he can to make that the last option possible. Um, and there is conflict already that's highlighted at this point too. You know you have that um, Harry Cooper trying to be the patriarchal kind of figure. And uh, and there, you know there's conflict between young and old, and there's the other there's another couple that come into the scene too. Mm. Um, and um, I don't think I'm trying to think I've got then uh, Tom and Judy, isn't it? 
are their names and they come into the equation a bit later on we'll get to them but like they are still kind of like reluctant to change or it's like it'll pass you know like if we just do nothing it, everything will be okay and they don't realize the gravitas of the situation that they're in and they've got their you know their their daughter karen she's she's ill she's injured she's downstairs yep. lying on a lying on a flat surface and you know one of the great zombie tropes is like <laughs> it's 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 used like potentially i think it's one of the best times it's been used because yep. spoilers is that she's been bitten yeah and she will turn but that happens in the last within the last 20 minutes last 15 minutes of the film that's right yeah it's but it is just this like the more you learn about the zombies the more you learn it's it it you kind of realize the dread of oh no she's been you know yeah everything everyone who dies is coming back a zombie you know that's right and and that's the thing too like and there, there is a moment where you feel for their plight too because they are trying to protect their daughter they know that something bad's happening you know and they they it's every parent's worst nightmare is to want to uh, uh, support and protect your children and they haven't been able to do that and they're in denial at the, what's about to become and that's what I'm saying they're stuck they're, they're, they are as a as characters they are rigid and they do not shift Mm. And unfortunately, because of that, they they're like the Hamlets of of this piece. You know, they they are they fail to act, and their failure to act leads to consequences down the track that um, that are beyond their own outside of their own peripheral um, space. You know, that they it, the walls will keep encroaching in, and there's not a lot they can do about it. You know, and um, and it's you know it's, this is a massive tragedy waiting to unfold. Um, so yeah, so like you said, you know, you've mentioned that you know Karen's you know been the daughter's been bitten, um, and uh, and it's only that when Ben has turned the radio on is what brings them up, and that's when they we're able to kind of meet them. Uh, Barbara kind of does come out of her shock status at this point too. She does become a bit more not one of the living dead at this mm. moment, and is starting to be a bit more focused on what's happening. Um, they do try and kind of uh, barricade the outside a bit more. Again, they you know after that first wave, they try and do that again. Uh, this is where when they're listening to the radio. Oh no, they find a television. That's right, mm. and they kind of you get this kind of uh, stuff that's unfolding in the outside world, and they kind of start to realize how how big it is. There's you know we see scientists and stuff kind of and um, the U.S. military as well. Um, kind of expressing, you know, what's been happening. And there's a scientist that mentions, you know, radioactivity at some point and contamination. and yeah. Nothing, it's all very kind of loose and nothing really concrete, but that kind of adds to that mm. whole mystery of what's what's unfolding. It's natural disaster. It's, you know, the, yeah. the, they've got the emergency broadcast going on. These are, you know, going through the list of towns with, uh, uh, you know, where the safe points are and and, like... Because it, yeah, this, this film's like a, it's a it's a drama. It's like an Edward Albee play, you know. It's like, <laughs> you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's just all within this one house of these, these 
people from you know different age people kind of clashing and every now and again we'll we'll go to the tv which just takes us out and we get another piece of what's happening out in the world and yeah makes the world so bigger it does too and this is something like there's a two points that you just kind of were raising there which i wouldn't mind your school of thought on well, one of one of them, I, one of them more is just exactly that point. They are they are kind of self-contained in this kind of house, as it were. Um, and TV would have been a still a fairly new medium at this point, and it was the resource that a lot of families would go to to get their source from what's happening outside. And this is their only way of doing that. And everything that they are being fed, then. Uh, uh, leads to their actions within that house and the impact that it has. Um, and so it was interesting that, you know, whether that was an intentional commentary from Romero or not of how TV does fuel our actions mm. um, and and how we approach things. And the other thing that I just wanted to get your, particularly, as I said, your school of thought on is coming from an actor's point of view, um, because I can really see this, uh, set up really well as a as a theatre production, yeah. Because it's all in one one space and having these kind of dynamics in, interplay. And as you as you know, any the sign of any decent play or or, or written piece, um, you know, is the drama that comes out of the of conflict. You know, you can't have con- you know you can't have drama without conflict. Um, and this is ripe with it, you know. Not only do they, do they have the conflict bearing down outside their walls, but it has an, a significant impact on the people within those walls, and the dynamics and the shifts that happen within that. Um, you know, could, if you were to see this in a modern setting, how would you place that? And could you see that work in in a theatre environment still? I could. I yeah. No, I. I can't believe I'd never thought about it, but like this would be, this would make such a great piece of, of stage of mm. theater of, of, and you'd be able to do it as well because it's not, um, it's not under copyright laws. Yeah. Uh, being, being, cause they didn't have the, the little C with the title in the beginning. So <laughs> people have like remixed this and, it's all yeah. over the internet and you know copyright free you can yeah that's right yeah, and, and, and there's been like a colorized version of this that's come out yep. as well and you know you name it it's it's done mm-hmm. it so yeah, but personally i I'd, I'd love to see a, a an adaptation of this on the on the theater i think it would be kind yeah. of interesting uh and in and also just to kind of you know throw it out there similarly to what the hunted team did to have that kind of mm group of uh, the audience coming into that space and having this external stuff happening and have mm. the key players driving that kind of uh, direction through would be really interesting to see how that plays out. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you take a small group, you, you know, yeah. pick sides, you know, that could change the course of the of the play, you know. That's right. I, I, I think there's... There's something there, man. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a hunger. Like, you know, people are this kind of immersive theatre, this, yeah. this stuff that people might not recognise as immersive theatre. Yes. Like uh, in, I know in Sydney and I think in Melbourne and a couple of the capital cities, they do Z-Town. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah. The big giant Nerf gun game of zombie tag. Yes. And that is people 
I went to one last year and there was a thousand people out at Homebush in Sydney and it was like incredible. And people, <laughs> it's impossible not to get into it yes, and yeah. to, to not like get hyped up and get anxious and get, free, you know, freaking out when you see a the zombies running towards you, you know, yeah. you've only got a couple people left. And yeah, I, nice man. Yeah. <laughs> zombie, zombie horror. That's the next, that's, it's not the next step. It's like a, it's a parallel step of, you know, people watching movies and maybe that doesn't get it, get it for you. So, you know, bring it out into the real world and, you know, get chased by actual blood bladded people and yeah there's there's such a big rise of it you only need to look at like the escape rooms as well and things that are set up like that you know people are kind of wanting that kind of a bit more of that experience that comes with it um yeah we're really interesting to see um see where that takes it and whether that kind of picks up a little bit more i mean you know zed town's only one one of a number of these kind of little uh experiences that you can go on as you said um yeah so it'd be interesting to see um so where were we so back to night of the living dead um and uh okay yeah once again ben finds the medical kit and he's got that for karen to kind of help um there are reports coming through i think again on tv about rescue centers uh they're offering uh refuge um so they that's what makes them think about can they make it to these places and you know they look outside and there's a uh, I think it's. I think it actually is Ben's truck, and they think, well, is there a way that we can kind of get to that to? Because they need um, gas. Because there's a gas out yeah. there locked. So that's why Ben had come to this place initially. Yes, that's right. That's that's right. That's right. Thank you. And that's why he was like hoping they had some kind of fuel in there. And I'm sorry, I kind of missed the point where Tom and Judy did turn up as well. So they they're the teenage couple, and I kind of insinuated about them earlier. Um, and they kind of arrive, they do arrive on the scene as well, um, to the farmhouse. So we have six players of the piece, seven, if you include Karen, um, in the equation. So, um, so Ben and Tom kind of try and work out a way if they can refuel Ben's truck, Mm. um, and get Harry to kind of basically throw these uh, Molotov kind of cocktails from upstairs at the ghouls. Yeah. To drive them away, essentially, so they kind of get they across. Do not like fire. They one don't of, like fire. I think which that's that's one of the elements here that didn't carry across. No, when they became the mindless Walking Dead, they stopped caring about things. You know, they stopped using yeah. tools until yes. Land of the Dead. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're picking up the machine guns. Yeah, that's when they started <laughs> the machine guns. That's so funny, that bit. Oh, well, we we do get a bit of it with Bob, don't we? In in uh, Day of yeah. the Dead as well. So that there is that kind of in, that there is something still ticking along with the intelligence side of things. Mm. Uh, this is pre this predates that. So you're right. I don't know whether the fire thing is a bit of a nod back to Frankenstein's monster, though, but, yeah. and things like that, because that is in, intrinsic within his character as well. And, you know, they are, you know, and even Frankenstein's monster is a nod to um, the golem, uh, which was the wooden uh, statue that comes to life. And again, fire is obviously its nemesis because it's made of wood or clay. It's clay, isn't it? Sorry, not wood. Mm. Um, But the same kind of thing, it's going to melt and destruct with fire. So it's this kind of, and, you know, fire is, uh, 
the first man uh, invented thing um, that advanced us as a as a human race. Um, a weapon, a tool, a, you know. You just need to look at 2001 A Space Odyssey and kind of see that kind of, you know, that logical step that Kubrick takes us on, just to mention him again. Um, but, um, yeah, look, it's uh, – so they do – they're trying to, as I said, for good or ill, like, you know, whether it works or not, that this is their plan. They're trying to lure the uh, ghouls away so that they can try and get to this car and hopefully uh, – truck and hopefully refuel it. Um, but there's a point in that where um, is it, yeah, Judy follows Tom out, doesn't she, as well? Mm. And, you know, Tom kind of somehow he spills the gasoline on the truck and then the whole thing ignites. Mm. Um, and um, there's Tom and Judy are in the truck still trying to drive away from the, from the fuel pump, essentially. And um, they're able to get out and the, and the truck just basically explodes, killing them both. Mm. Um, and whoever the zombies were around also, but they kind of then start eating their remains and stuff as well. So we're starting to actually see them feeding off. Yeah, that's the that's the is that the first time we see them eating doing I, the cannibalism? I, I want to say it was because up to then they're just attacking them. You know, this yeah. is the first time where you actually see that they're actually feeding off them as well. well and so, it's the first time that they've caught caught someone that we've seen yes. catch someone. That's it. That's it. Um, so yeah, so they kind of kill off the the two new uh, characters, and you know they're 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 there for a decent amount of time, enough to cause enough uh, angst within the within yep. the within the farmhouse. Um, but we're quickly kind of left with the uh, the original five, as it were, again. Um, so um, Ben Ben tries to get back in the house, but Harry does his whole kind of flip out then he he's locked he's locked Ben outside mm. uh but he Ben still managed to get his way in and he basically just kind of really lays into Harry and has a go at him for being a coward and it's, it's such a great moment because he yeah. yeah he he kicks Ben kicks the door in breaks the door in and immediately has to try and hold off the zombies while he tries and re reinforces it and you just yes. carry in the doorway with the shadows on his face kind of struggling <laughs> with the fact of like if he doesn't help him they'll get in and kill them all yeah yeah, yeah. but he just tried to lock this guy out and he rushes up and helps and as soon as they've got it nailed in like ben's all business yes one thing he just looks at him and lays him out yeah yeah that's it that's it <laughs> It's great. It's, it's, Such a great and it, it's the real, it's the real pivot point as well, because up to that mm. point, there's been this uh, leadership struggle between the two of them. Mm. It's the one point where he just, he just puts Harry in his place. You know? Yeah. Um, and it, and then I, shortly after that, I think is when we get the most important bit of zombie folklore that's added to uh, not just the living dead series, but, um, everything that's followed afterwards and that's the uh about hearing about the single gunshot to the head is what can stop them mm. and it's something that's you as i said you see in every zombie film ever afterwards it's even something that comes up like often in my discussions with a fellow podcaster anthony um he kind of says the problem with zombie films now is that you still have to have the characters not know what a zombie is 
and explain the rules of that when the audience already knows what those rules are. Mm. And so you have this kind of awkward 20-minute period where you have to go through those motions. And there's a, there must be a quicker way of doing that without having to go, what's a zombie? You know, when everyone knows what a zombie is when they've gone to see these films. Um, yeah, Catch-22, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> And then you get, you know, you get the, like a zombie land, you get, you know, you get yeah, yeah, yeah. self-aware, you know, zombie yeah. movies where zombie movies exist. That's right. That's in right. In the world. That's yeah. the shorthand because everyone knows, <laughs> everyone has a zombie plan, you know. <laughs> yes, zombie plan. You can't go back. It's like a age of innocence that you, you can, we can't <laughs> return to now in cinema. No, that's it. Never, never take it back. Once you've lost your zombie virginity, then that's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> After the first uh, bullet to the head, that's all right. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so um, there is also mentioned, obviously, in that in sorry, in the same news report that there are now armed men out patrolling the countryside to try and kind of maintain. Now that they know that this is a way to stop these zombies, there are people out there trying to stop it. Uh, we then get this point where, you know, the lights go out um, and zombies are actually starting to break into the barricades. So they don't have very much longer to kind of hold themselves up against uh, the impending doom that's kind of approaching them. Um, Harry takes a grab for Ben's rifle um, and he threatens to shoot Ben. Uh, There's a bit of a struggle between the two. They have a bit of a fight. Uh, ben does manage to get the gun away as um, Har- uh, from Harry, and he shoots him. And yeah, which is yeah, which is so intense. It's yeah, uh, yeah. Their their chess game of you know one upsmanship, like <laughs> like Ben finishes it because I mean, really, this guy is going to get him, is going to kill him. It's kill or be killed. That's right. Because he, you know, Harry is a dan- he he is a danger. He's a danger to every to everyone involved, mm. and uh, it's um, it is it is that kind of tipping point where something's got to be done, and it's it's an interesting point too, where you know it's it is do or die essentially, like you know, and we get uh, this kind of, the conflict has to come to a head at some point, mm. uh, and so Harry kind of stumbles back into the cellar with you know uh, he's he's mortally wounded, he's going to die, essentially. Um, and he ends up kind of collapsing down next to Karen, his daughter, who's down, still down in the cellar. Um, and she's died by this point. Um, and uh, the ghouls outside are trying to get to Helen and Barbara through the windows. Um, Helen does kind of free herself. Um, she then also goes down to the cellar for refuge, and that's where she sees her daughter now reanimated, eating Harry's corpse. Mm-hmm. Beautiful scene that bit. I mean, it's like it's it's a really confrontational, shocking moment. Iconic. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's so iconic. Um, and again, this uh, ongoing kind of. Uh, motif that runs through this is this inability to act because once again helen freezes she doesn't know what to do and it's this inability to act that's the downfall of most of the people that are here um in the film and so and uh at what point um karen then um gets doesn't she get a trowel or or like a shovel picks up a trowel and just goes psycho yeah um on the mum. And the, the mum. 
there's this great her screaming the mum's scream in that has this great sound effect it's if you haven't heard anything else like it in the film yeah but there's that stabbing scene where it's yeah that was one of those the moments in the film where i was like this is this is so gruesome like especially for 1968 i mean what if you know a few years there were was um you know hitchcock had psycho yes which 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 this kind of has all of yeah all of the gore of psycho tenfold yes like it's got a corpse. Yeah, we see the corpse right in the beginning. Of the, <laughs> uh, the, the stabbing scene, you know, we see we see it go in. We see yeah. the blood. And uh, it's quite quite haunting. It, it, yeah. Everything, it's the mo- everything just the escalates at this point, doesn't it? Like, it's just, this is where, like, the, the lid is off, you know, and, and everything goes, goes crazy. Everyone's going to, yeah, within a couple minutes, everything has gone to shit. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, and you see that a lot in uh, uh, you, you get it a lot in like zombie killer games, you know, like on you know uh, mm. your Left for Dead's and stuff like that, where it can get really intense really quite quickly. Mm. Um, and um, but yeah, like uh, yeah, so like, and, and what does this say as well? Uh, you know, with the Karen killing you know, the daughter, you know, killing her mum, Helen. You know, if, if the outside world doesn't kill you. Then your kids sure as hell will. Mm. Um, you know, it's like a little you know, bit of like Oedipus. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we get we basically get the Coopers all kind of basically killed in, in, a, in a very short, succinct moment of time, um, and then uh, and then Barbara sees her brother appear at this point mm. too as a reanimated corpse. Um, and there's a great, okay. like, when we, uh, uh, a great sort of character uh, signify that it is him as well, not, because, I mean, we haven't seen him since the beginning of the movie, but uh, uh, in that beginning, he puts on leather gloves, leather, like, driving gloves. Yes. You just see the gloves, you know, as he kind of comes in. It's just this, because uh, he is, he's ghouled up. He's all, yes, you know, that's right. It's all spooky. So it's just that other little visual stimulate you know stimulator in your brain of being like oh i i remember this guy i remember yeah. watching him put those gloves on and <laughs> those gloves that are, he's grabbing barbara and dragging her into the that's it into the into the horde that's it and it's it's such a great because you know it's like just at the point where you think barbara might be snapping out of it just at the point where we um see you know there's just at the point where Barbara is, is kind of snapping out of that shock, um, she's thrust straight back in it when she first sees, you know, her brother as this mm. zombie. Um, and she's right back to square one again. And, and it's what basically, you know, it leaves again is, is her destruction as he pulls her. It's her past pulling her back in, you know, and, and destroying her essentially. And as she's, as you said, pulled off into the horde. Um, and devoured by the mass that's kind of consumed at this point. Um, and they're starting to really overrun the house. And so, you know, um, Ben's kind of on his own at this point. He's got no option but to go back down into the cellar himself, back where he didn't want to be uh, as he's kind of fighting off. And uh, he, uh, 
Yeah. Uh, does he? I'm tr- did he end up killing Karen at this point as well? I can't remember if he. Yeah. Does he shut her out? Yeah. No. no right. uh, oh no no no. He does. He he locks her out because yeah, that's she's right. come up the stairs and he kind of that's throws right. her off. That's exactly. Um, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I, th- I think killing killing a child might have might have been a bit too much at the time. At the I mean, time, but then the ten, ten, ten years later, it's something he does do. You know, oh. in Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and you know, it's uh, one that uh, a scene that Ken Foray, who is the one that shoots those kids in that film, said it was it was the toughest thing he had to do in that film, um, which you can completely understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. Nineteen sixty eight. It wasn't an explored area. Um, no. so, <laughs> so Ben does end up trapped in a cellar yep. where he didn't want to be. Uh, he's got no way of, of getting out, and so he finds himself, uh, as I said, down in there. I, I think at this point, Hen, uh, Hen, Helen, and Harry start reanimating, and he has to. He's forced to shoot them as well yeah. and kill them, and. You know, he gets through all this stuff, and so he's basically stuck in the cellar. And then we get uh, the next day, essentially, dawn starts to break. Mm. Uh, so he's made it through the night, um, and he can hear the posse of gunfire outside. Mm. So he's thinking, okay, I'm going to be saved. Um, and so he ventures upstairs. But we, I mean, we, we spend a bit of time with that posse as well. Like, we cut over yeah. to them for like five minutes like it, it's a significant amount of time where we're watching we're watching them you know shoot yeah. down people and and shoot down and they're, they're they're typical rednecks as well mm. you know like american rednecks and so they're armed to the teeth they're shooting anything that moves essentially uh and just tossing it onto uh, uh, uh like the bodies a bonfire. Onto, uh, bonfire burning them all yeah mm. um and you're right we're with them for for a, a, a series of time there as well um, so Ben kind of hears this going on outside. He ventures upstairs and one of the posse kind of sees the movement going on in the house, thinks he's a ghoul and basically shoots him point blank in the forehead, uh, killing him. And as you said, it's, it's a gut wrenching moment. Like you said, uh, earlier on, like, you know, he's gone through all this ordeal only to just be snuffed out like that with it within the blink of an eye. Um, and he, and then we see his body thrown, you know, to add salt to the wound. Mm-hmm. His body being thrown onto the pile of corpses and just set set ablaze, you know. Uh, it it's something that hangs so uh, prominently at the end of this movie, and doesn't matter how many times you watch that film, it still gets you, you know. Like it's it's, it's such a impactful moment. Mm. Um, Watching it. Watching a character, watching a character who you've you've seen just fight tooth and nail the whole way, and like when you watch someone overcome so much, and it's it's a death that is completely out of their control. Yeah, there's nothing that he could have done, uh, uh, and and yeah, having that the resonance of the you know the. Uh, uh, the civil rights movement of you know of the time and, and yeah, it's yeah. so powerful. Um, You're right. I, I mean, people people have likened it to the um, you know the death of Martin Luther King, um, and with good reason too. Like you know, we have this very strong Black American, African American actor um, and character who has been the dominating force 
Uh, he's been the only uh, sign of hope within the film. And to have hope snuffed out like that uh, is, 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 is hugely fundamental to the impact of, of not only the film, but if we are to look at American society and, as I said, the, uh, the likeness with the, the death of Martin Luther King, it had you know a similar effect you know this is this is uh america uh, at the time at its worst um having to be reborn but out of what out of chaos you know and and destruction and where do you go from here you know we've had a president uh shot and killed we've had um a, an extraordinary pioneer for human decency uh also kind of killed um it yes yeah, it's, it's you know and it's almost like romero doesn't offer any answers to that he just puts it on uh, out out there this is what it is this is real life and this you know these things are happening mm. um and it's a yeah it's a it's just incredibly strong moment as i said in the film he does he did apparently draw inspiration from richard matheson's i am legend Oh, which really? is, um, you know, that's more leaning towards like the vampire plague rather than yep. um, uh, the zombie plague. Um, but equally, you know, the, the lead in that as well is uh, a lone island and ultimately is, is killed at the very end. So it's this mm. very kind of downtrodden ending. And so when you know that in mind, you can really see that resonating through Night of the Living Dead. Mm. Um, and, Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's as I said, it's a hugely powerful moment. Um, do, do you remember the first time you watched that and watched the movie in that moment at all, or and how that made you feel? It, it was, it was that like, like just a gut punch of a mm. of a of a film, and it was it was another reason why I got drawn closer in because I, I remember I remember growing up, I had a real uh, I I. I was not a fan of anything, any older films. I was just like, that looks yeah. old. That's, you know, like, no, thank you. I don't want to watch that. But yeah, this was one of those other ones of being like, wow. Like, yeah. and even the further, you know, fur- the further you go back in terms of like watching like Twilight Zone episodes, yes. like watch incredible, incredible storytelling. Uh, and, and that's what, and that's what it is. Even though the medium is, 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 Slightly different. It's got the hallmarks of the time and the context, but great storytelling is still great storytelling. Yeah. Whether it's you know Romero in the '60s or you know uh, Greek tragedies or you know it's uh, we've had a long time to practice storytelling. We, <laughs> you know we know how to tell one. It, it, so it's, yeah, it's, it's what it's great. It's, oh, it, yeah. it's it's how we it's how we without meaning to get too deep but it's how we learn and adapt as as a race as well like you only need to look at like the the myths and legends that are told uh, of yesteryear um that are passed down from generation to generation which all have their morals Mm. that people needed to abide by or live by in order to kind of learn from their ancestors um and you know we see that carried uh, you know modern day storytelling is predominantly done through film or t- no, TV again is kind of obviously having a resurgence 
again, but it's where most people have accessibility to these things. You know, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm kind of waffling around, but it's just, um, yeah, it's a kind of an interesting um, medium. And as you said, we, when it's done right and done well, done well, it's, it can leave a, a massive lasting impression. Mm. And of course with this, you know, Romero, made a career of it. He became the Godfather of the Dead. Like, there were six dead films that came out under his uh, tutorship and direction. Um, interestingly, like, you know, the next installment wouldn't be till another 10 years with Dawn of the Dead. Um, and he got a lot of pressure straight after Night of the Living Dead to do sequels, and he was um, a little opposed to doing it and wanted to explore other things. So we, we didn't you know, we got there's a, a film called There's Always Vanilla, which he was working on, and then Season of the Witch. Then The Crazies came along in 1973 as well, which is mm-hmm. iconic in its own way and a bit of a forgotten gem, and maybe even more so when the remake came out, it kind of diminished it a little bit more. But when you watch The Crazies, there are definite elements of Dawn of the Dead within that. Yeah, um, which is which is awesome. And then, like, you know, then he uh, worked on Martin as well uh, just before Dawn of the Dead came out. Um, and at which point, you know, he, before that, like, you know, so those films, like, what was that one, two, three, four, four films basically between, and neither of them really made a mark. And it was only then he was like, maybe I do need to kind of relook at the, the dead stuff and see what comes. And we get the gem that was Dawn of the Dead. Um and we'll save that for another podcast, um, you know. But you know, he worked. He collaborated with Dario Gento within that too. This was uh, they met shortly after Suspiria had came out, and you know, and Dawn of the Dead was uh, Dario Gento kind of edited the foreign version of that film. Uh, and off the back of that, we then get the zombie films that were kind of released: Zombie Two and Zombie Three, uh, which was another spin-off and a different area something we didn't touch on as well is the writer of night of the living dead john russo was also responsible for writing um return of the living dead which also spawned a whole new uh uh franchise as well so there was lot there's lots of these kind of fractured stuff that's kind of born out of uh this is where it began this was in the initial seed without um Night of the Living Dead, as I said, you wouldn't have gotten your Walking Dead now. You wouldn't have gotten Shaun of the Dead, which is probably the best homage to that genre. Um, and it's a fantastic film. Um, but where do you think it sits today? Like, you know, you were talking about, uh, you know, you easily dismissed older films um, when you were first coming into the genre. And this is coming from somebody that's a fan of horror as well, you know. What, yeah. So... Where do you think it sits from a personal point of view and how how would you encourage somebody to go out go and watch this if they could now? Like, I probably wouldn't... Like, it wouldn't be my go-to recommend for someone who's like, hey, recommend me a horror film. I'm like, yeah. I prob- probably wouldn't go there. I'd, I'd say it, hmm. it, sits, it sits more comfortably in, in horror history in homework if you're interested in it yes then there's a lot to take from it and i, th- I think as a movie watching experience it still does hold up uh 
but it is, you know, his first film. And, you know, you can see a lot of the cracks of, of a young filmmaker in this. Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the low-budget uh, sort of uh, restraints that they, that they had. Uh, and so, you know, it, it isn't a perfectly film, but I think a lot of charm comes from that. Yes. And a lot of creativity came from that. And a lot of incredible moments, and I'm um, stuff with the you know the the like Ben's character was originally supposed to be a trucker who was really angry. And That's right. This complete complete other thing, and then uh, uh, when Dwayne came in, it just it changed it. Yeah, for for the better, for the better so much in a way that I I think like Hollywood almost missed. One of the one of the great lessons from that film, mm. they took the zombie stuff and, uh, uh, but it but they they kind of forgot, you know, this who's you know African American. He was he was an intellectual character. He was this uh, uh, this portrayal. I, it kind of got a little bit left behind, uh, mm-hmm. whereas the rest of those elements kind of got thrown and thrust into the into the zeitgeist. Yep. Um, yep. But I think it. I think yeah no I I definitely think if you are interested at all in in horror history in zombie films at all if you, <laughs> I I know some people like low budget movies like they yeah. specifically enjoy uh, watching movies that are made on a you know shoestring and you know watching the if you like the original Evil Dead if you like you know you know Friday the Thirteenth yeah. you know. It, Watching these movies, I think it does comfortably sit in that kind of realm, mm. and you mm. know, being at the forefront of that horror wave that was like just on the doorstep. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that, right. That modern horror of of gore, of of, mm. of violence, of you know, of being like post the Hayes Code. You know, like the Hayes Code had finished, so now they could. Now they could kind of show whatever they wanted. Yeah, and yeah. My God, did he have fun doing that? I think that's the thing, and you can see there's fun being made within it, despite how intense and grim the outcome of the film was. Um, you can see that scene, and more, obviously more so as as he was able to have that creativity a bit more and a bit more money behind him as well. Like I, I think, interestingly, Dawn of the Dead does overshadow Night of the Living Dead because that was it's such a I don't know whether it's my own entry into the, the dead genre but it's such a iconic film and he had more flexibility not only that but he had Tom Zavini coming into the mm-hmm. equation as well and every, everything that him and his team brought into it as well, well so and he was I mean he was supposed to be Tom Savini was supposed to be on this one yeah he, he, he auditioned as an actor, but he'd also brought his makeup stuff. Yes. And and he wasn't even drafted into the war. Yes. Yeah. Which is, you know, like, the, and the fact that, you know, 10 years later they came back and became the collaborators that they did. Okay. It's, it's incredible. It, they really were able to, I think 10 years of time, he was able to come back and be like, okay, I've got, I've, he's, he had, honed his craft yeah. he'd made four other films he yeah. he you know he'd learned so many lessons and he brought it all for dawn of the day yeah. definitely definitely 100 percent. 
But then, look, that's for another podcast, and we will get to that. Um, I think that kind of we're probably at the point where we could wrap up our discussions on Night of the Living Dead. Is there anything else, any uh, lasting kind of comments you'd like to say on on the film? I think that it's it's. I mean, the debt that that film owes to this movie is is immeasurable it it really did shape it has shaped our culture in such a massive way zombies come back every they it comes back as a flavor as a strong flavor yes you know every couple every you know every decade every few years um and i i yeah i strongly recommend if you haven't watched it it's you know you can get HD versions of it on, <laughs> on YouTube and it's all yeah. fine because it's copyright free. There's a, there's an excellent um, video essay about the copyright situation by um, a guy named uh, Captain Christian, Captain with a K, Christian with a K. Sure, um, has a fantastic video um, about uh, about neither the Living Dead and copyright. Very interesting. Nice. I have to check that one out. Thanks for that. And I, and I will kind of echo your point as well because you mentioned it as well about Friday the Thirteenth and Sean Cunningham. And, um, you know, these are all people that were so inspired by the low budget kind of know how and um, what can be achieved on very little budget, which then made these next wave of pioneers kind of go, I can do that. Actually, I can create something out of that and. This is why Romero is so significant within the horror genre because he was the one that opened that door a little bit for people to look through that crack and go, I can do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, look, on that note, thank you so much for joining me uh, for the discussions here, Oscar. Once again, I am your lead host, Saul Muerte. And uh, until next time, goodbye. Thanks again, Oscar. Thanks very much. You're listening. To the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Music supplied by Peter Nezik. For more discussions or podcasts, head over to surgeonsofhorror.com or head over to our Facebook and Twitter sites for the latest news and updates.